You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. We start with breaking news out of Surrey where a transit police officer has been shot. Global's Jade Arant is in our newsroom with the latest on this story. Jay, details still coming in, but we understand the suspect is still at large right now. That's right, Sophie. Details are still coming in, but here's what we know so far. This happened at the Scott Road station at the south end of the Patella Bridge at about 4 p.m. The transit officer appears to have been shot while on the platform. We're told the remains of paramedics' equipment is on the ground, along with police cones possibly marking shell casings. Now, the officer's name is Josh Harms. He has been rushed to hospital. We're told he has serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Surrey RCMP are warning that the suspect is still on the loose and might still be armed, and they're asking people to stay away from the area. We are continuing to follow this breaking news, and we'll have more information for you as soon as it becomes available. Sophie, Chris? All right, Jay Durant in the newsroom. Now, as it happens, global reporter Paul Johnson was on the SkyTrain and went right through the Scott Road station almost immediately after this happened. Uh, he joins us now on the phone. Paul, thanks very much for calling in. What, describe what you saw when you went by. Uh, Chris, yeah, clearly uh, it was the scene of a very serious crime. Uh, you know, the train isn't stopping there to let people off at Scott Road. I was coming east on the Expo line, and you could see discarded bandages, uh, what looked like discarded bandages, and clearly uh, the debris that would be left over after first responders uh, had been giving first aid to someone who had been very badly injured. Um, there were also what appeared to be, um, as Jay was talking about, the small orange pylons, the cones that you see associated with crime scenes often used uh, to mark shell casings or significant pieces of evidence. Um, the other big headline here, I've got to tell you, this part of Surrey right now, Wally, in the middle of uh, rush hour, is total chaos. Uh, you know, as I was saying, uh, SkyTrain is uh, not stopping at Scott Road Station. Um, that's disrupted things. They're having to shuttle people from the stops on either side of Scott Road to get where they need to go. But traffic on the major routes is also massively disrupted because of this. We're hearing King George highways blocked in both directions in Bridgeview. The Patella Bridge may also be blocked in at least one of the directions. And this is the result of a massive manhunt that is underway. I could see at least two dozen police cruisers fanned out throughout Bridgeview as this manhunt is happening. So if you're planning on moving through that area at any point this evening, you might reconsider your plans. And if you're waiting someone, waiting for someone to come home and you know they're going to be transiting this part of Surrey, there's a good chance they're going to be delayed a long time. Just wanted to clarify, too, you, when you say you saw the bandages and the cones, was that right on the platform where the SkyTrain pulls in? That's correct, Chris. That was right on the platform. Some of the people I was speaking to at Surrey Central Station who say they were talking to witnesses, so, you know, this is secondhand at this point, say they believe that the shooting happened right on the platform up at the top where the stairs and the escalators uh, would take people to wait for the train. All right. We're still waiting to get official confirmation on all of this, but that's what we're hearing. But we can tell you for certain a major incident at the Scott Road station, and it is a shooting. And obviously at, uh, at rush hour, lots of potential witnesses too. Paul Johnson, thanks very much for uh, your perspective on this and obviously more details as we move throughout the evening. Thank you. You bet.
All right. One of Canada's most wanted gangsters now has a very high price on his head. B.C.'s gang squad is pulling out all the stops in its search for the head of B.C.'s notorious U.N. gang, putting up the largest reward ever in Metro Vancouver. John Hua reports. Police say he was behind the all-out gang warfare that terrorized the Lower Mainland for years. Innocent people could have been hit. They allege he was the mastermind who gunned down rival Kevin LeClaire in 2009 and plotted the murders of the Bacon Brothers and other Red Scorpion members. It's their little turf war and they're going to have it wherever they're going to have it. A decade later, United Nations gang leader and one of Canada's most wanted, Connor DeMonte, is now the ticket to a $100,000 reward. And the loyalties of his associates will be tested. Others have been turned in for less. It's the largest cash reward of its kind ever to be offered in Metro Vancouver. Not for new witnesses or testimony. Investigators say they've got everything they need but DeMonte. This case is ready to go to trial. We're only looking for the location of Connor DeMonte so we can arrest him. Police believe the fugitive had fled the country. Previous tips and searches like this one near UBC, unable to pick up a trace. The power of information by the public cannot be understated. The eyes of the, pub or the police are few, but the eyes of the public are many. DeMonte speaks English and is 1.85 meters or 6 foot 1 inch tall. Forgetting his face will also be hard to do. Short for Be On The Lookout, the BOLO program first launched to help Toronto police last year. Its specialty broadcasting the most wanted across several mediums, now focused on a Find DeMonte campaign. Millions of Canadians will come across the DeMonte most wanted notice on their social media feeds, on various online platforms, or simply as a drive-by or walk around the lower mainland. The message to this notorious criminal living life on the lam, they will never stop looking. John Hua, Global News. Surrey RCMP have released a surveillance photo of a suspect in a disturbing incident near a secondary school. On January 10th, the girl walking to Sullivan Heights Secondary says a man exposed himself. The suspect is believed to be a teenager or possibly in his early 20s. He was wearing a blue hoodie, gray sweatpants, and black running shoes. Police are asking anyone with information to come forward. And they're also looking for any dash cam footage at the time. It's day two of a massive search effort in the B.C. interior. Volunteers looking for a missing cowboy. The search began on the huge Nicola Ranch near Merritt after loggers came across a riderless horse. Catherine Urquhart reports. In the Merritt backcountry, day three of a desperate search for 32-year-old Ben Tyner. Dozens of volunteers from multiple search and rescue organizations are scouring the area for Tyner. Ben is uh, new to the communities. We're, we're concerned and every hour counts. So. Uh, we just wanted to be, be able to provide uh, boots on the ground and, and cover the ground with, with all the, the great teams around here. Also here, his parents and younger brother Jack, the family having flown in from their home in Wyoming. Tyner is the manager at Nicola Ranch, and he spoke to Global News just two weeks ago after an arsonist burned down a local church. Just a senseless act, and I certainly hope... Uh, whoever did this is brought to justice, though I, I know that won't replace the church. Ben Tyner's riderless horse was discovered by loggers on Monday. 
It was unharmed, but there was no sign of him. There's still some question as to how he got up here and whether he may have been brought up if somebody drove him up with a truck and trailer. We haven't located that person as yet, if there is, so we are looking for that information if somebody was able to give him a ride up here. Overnight temperatures in the region have plummeted as low as minus 18 in recent days, making it critical that Ben Tyner is found soon. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. For the first time in a long time, a provincial by-election is generating some real excitement, some tension and even suspense. The polls close in Nanaimo at 8 o'clock, so not a lot of time for voters who are deciding nothing less than what could be the future of the NDP government. Richard Zussman is live in Nanaimo for us tonight. Richard, we really are in some uncharted political territory here. We sure are, Chris, and a lot on the line tonight for the B.C. NDP. We are here at Sheila Malcolmson's headquarters. Malcolmson is here, so is Premier John Horgan, and volunteers are trying to get out those last-minute voters here, but it's very clear, Chris, everyone who showed up at the polls today know this vote matters. Can you tell them who you voted for? I no. forgot. <laughs> it's a surprise. It's the surprise that will soon be revealed to British Columbians. In a few hours, the results will be known in the Nanaimo by-election, arguably the most important by-election in this province's history. I'm actually happy that we actually have a say. Well, I guess it's as much this community as the rest of BC. So, you know, it's Liberal, NDP, Green. The reason for the vote's importance are clear. If the Liberals win their 43rd seat, the slim minority government in Victoria will get even tighter. With the NDP forced to govern with 43 votes, including three from the Greens, that would mean Speaker Daryl Plekis would have to break all ties. That's why all the major parties have poured resources into this riding. The three parties, the three main parties, have brought in their heavy artillery from their head offices. Liberal candidate Tony Harris spent part of the day with his son, getting his hair cut, hoping his new do will pair well with a new MLA job. Whatever the outcome is, uh, we're really proud of the campaign that's been totally homegrown, focused on Nanaimo's opportunities. NDP candidate Sheila Malcolmson spent some time with her spouse Howie today, getting voters to the polls. And even though this has historically been a safe NDP seat, she isn't taking anything for granted. We think it should be close. The, we always knew that the Liberals would throw everything they've got at this. The stakes are so high. Voters have been heading to the polls all day, but the fate of this election may rest in the hands of the early voters. More than 9,000 people voted in the advanced polls, making up more than 20% of the electorate. NDP is much better at uh, voter turnout. If it's a higher turnout, uh, that would uh, speak well for the NDP. We have also been hearing a lot of stories today about people who have showed up in the polls in Nanaimo and have been told they can't vote. The reason why, they live in the city of Nanaimo, but they're actually in one of the two other ridings that borders the city. Disappointed people, but in a race that's expected to be very close, every vote matters here, Chris. No doubt. Okay, thanks very much, Richard. Look forward to your coverage throughout the night. And adding to the suspense of tonight's vote count, of course, is the fact that past elections tell us this could go either way. Our Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry is in Victoria with some analysis for us. And Keith, you could say that both sides have history uh, on their side tonight. 
Indeed they do, uh, Sophie. It's quite interesting. Look at the history of by-elections in B.C. It's a different story than general elections. But I want to throw a couple numbers at everyone. First of all, and this number, uh, this statistic will give NDP some comfort, NDP supporters some comfort, because the NDP has won 13 of the last 15 elections in Nanaimo. Uh, that dates back decades. So only lost one since 1972. That's one way of looking at it. Here's another way of looking at it, and this will delight the B.C. Liberals, because, again, the sitting government of the day has lost 21 of of the last 24 provincial by-elections. It doesn't matter what party, social credit, NDP, BC Liberal, if they're in government, they generally lose by-elections. We'll see what happens tonight. Uh, a couple other odds and ends, little tidbits I want to throw at you. Uh, the average margin of victory for the NDP in the last three elections has been substantial, 3,300, uh, which is uh, one of the highest uh, totals in, in the province. BC Liberal's vote has averaged just 35% in the last three elections. I think that's going to come up today. And the BC Greens got 20% of the vote in 2017, one of their best showings in the province. Can can they repeat? I suspect they won't. I'm predicting that the, it will be a tight race between the B.C. Uh, NDP and the B.C. Liberals. I think history uh, is on the NDP side here, though. And look for that green vote to go down. And that could be one of the big sidebar stories tomorrow, whether this raises questions about the future of the Green Party. We'll see how well they do when we begin our coverage just after 8 o'clock. And you will be part of it, along with Richard, Sarah McDonald, or Sonia Diol here at B.C. One. Thank you very much, Keith. Uh, we will have that extensive live coverage of the by-election results on B.C. One tonight beginning when the polls close at eight o'clock and running until at least 10 30 and or until we have an outcome and uh, as we've seen the last couple of elections it could go much longer we'll also have a full rundown of the results and analysis on global news at 11 tonight now for the second time this month someone has illegally cut trees in vancouver this time it happened at the langara golf course where more than 60 trees were vandalized. Nadia Stewart reports. Yeah, still lots of questions surrounding this one. The big one being why someone would go through the Langara golf course and saw off the tops of more than 50 trees. Police believe this has been going on for about four weeks now. These trees act as a barrier between the golf course and a nearby trail. So they're a bit of a buffer to protect folks who are walking along the trail to keep them from being hit by any of these stray golf balls. Again, still not clear why, but over 50 trees have had the tops sawed off and they likely will not recover from the damage. That's a lot of trees, even on a golf course. Um, and these are beautiful trees. There's sequoia trees, there's firs, there's alder. It's a mix of everything. Um, so unfortunately, there's no real rhyme or reason. There's, as you can see uh, right here, there's no real view corridor for anybody. There's no, nothing that really makes any sense. It doesn't really stop or impede the golfers. Um, so we're at a bit of a dead end here trying to figure out why somebody would be doing this. Now, this incident follows another one earlier this month where about eight trees had their tops sawed off near Spanish banks. Still not clear whether or not those two incidents are linked. The Parks Board is asking for anyone who lives in this area, if they've seen anything, heard anything, to give them a call or to contact police. Back to you. All right. Thanks, Nadia. Right now, though, B.C.'s capital city is facing off against Calgary in a war of words that began with Victoria endorsing an oil patch lawsuit over climate change. Calgary's mayor fired back, reminding the Garden City that its own dirty little secret doesn't exactly reek of environmental friendliness. Kylie Stanton reports. This type of action 
uh, becomes uh, all the more uh, appropriate. It started out innocent enough, a new and unique approach for municipalities to recover costs associated with climate change. All those in favour? Council has endorsed looking at uh, the option of uh, pursuing class action proceedings to recover some of the costs that the city's incurred as a result of climate change. The city of Victoria is targeting Alberta-based oil and gas companies. But before anything is filed in court, city staff have been asked to report back on the magnitude of damages the city is incurring as a result. Victoria is one of, I think, 162 municipalities in B.C. So I think overall, um, province-wide, we're looking at billions of dollars in damages. But the idea is generating some heat in Alberta. Those counterparts now firing back, calling on the Calgary mayor to write a letter to Victoria Council expressing support for the energy sector, while calling out the city for what's being labeled as blatant hypocrisy. They are dumping millions upon millions of raw sewage into the Pacific, into the ocean. I thought initially, I thought it was a joke. To be fair, while long overdue, a wastewater treatment plant is finally under construction for the capital region, but even that hasn't stopped the Alberta Premier from weighing in. In a statement, Rachel Notley says the hypocrisy of this proposed lawsuit is astounding. While Victoria is pumping over 100 million litres of raw sewage into the ocean every day, the hard-working people of our energy sector are reducing emissions, investing in clean technology and powering our great country. A sentiment echoed by the Calgary mayor. We believe strongly in the environment and we believe strongly in the economy and we believe in financial and environmental prosperity for all Canadians. Still, Mayor and Council here are hoping others will join their fight. It will be brought forward at the next Union of BC Municipalities meeting in September. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. A massive expansion at Delta Port is currently under environmental review. Port officials warn we will all be paying more if Roberts Bank Terminal 2 doesn't get the green light. But as Grace Key reports... Some First Nations are not on board with this two million, make that billion dollar project. Members of the Coast Salish nations on both sides of the border speaking out against the proposed Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project, calling for a moratorium until a cumulative impact study is completed. Where this terminal sits, all the ships going to it pass through the United States to get to it. And when we are exercising our treaty-protected right to fish at that border, we are forever turning around and looking for ship traffic. The Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project is... Located in Delta, there would be a new three-berth marine container terminal, a widened causeway, and expanded tug basin. At an information meeting, the port says terminals on the West Coast are expected to be full as early as the mid-2020s. That cargo that's currently trucked around the lower mainland, they'll probably come off the ships in Seattle and Tacoma, so you'll have an increase in traffic in and out of the lower mainland in addition to the traffic in the lower mainland. And so you've got the, the cost implications, you've got the greenhouse gas implications of that. The new terminal will see an estimated 3,700 total daily truck trips between 8 to 10 container trains a day and handle up to 260 ship calls a year. It's taken until it's now affecting the killer whales for people to finally start listening. There was a mother this summer that swam with her, her dead baby for 17 days. And I think finally the world saw what is happening to our Salish Sea. We had a slowdown trial in uh, Harrow Strait, which is a significantly important uh, southern resident killer whale feeding area. 
And we were able to show that slowing the vessels down has a dramatic impact on reducing underwater noise. If approved, the $2 billion project would take five and a half years to construct and wouldn't be ready for service for at least a decade. Grace Key, Global News. The board has more immediate challenges because two giant cranes have been brought in now to clean up the twisted remains of another crane that collapsed on Monday at the Port of Vancouver. A 900-ton floating crane known as the Beast. And a second, slightly smaller unit will be used to do the heavy lifting. The Transportation Safety Board says the MV Ever Summit struck the crane while docking, causing it to collapse onto the containers. The berth is closed indefinitely, and that's causing some delays in shipments through the ports. A truck driver keeps his cool when a flying sheet of ice crashes into his windshield. Dash cam video shows a minivan passing the truck on a New York highway before ice from the van's roof sails off, shattering the truck's front window. Now take a look at the reverse angle, and you can see the truck driver wincing on the ice's impact, but he never loses control. He calmly pulls the truck over despite being blinded. The lesson here, of course, don't ignore the roof when clearing ice from your vehicle. Clear it all off. For the good of everyone on the roads. Uh, there's a lot of people who need that advice when it snows around exactly. here. Exactly. All right, another day of raw emotion in a Saskatchewan courtroom today. Indeed, the last of more than 70 victim impact statements on day three of the sentencing hearing for the semi-truck driver in the Humboldt Broncos crash. Carol Bronze always dreamed of walking her daughter down the aisle of a beautiful church. It never happened at her wedding. Instead, it happened at her funeral. Her sister and brothers don't have a sister, and her, her partner doesn't have a person to carry through with him. And we, we are devastated. Dana Bronze was one of 16 people killed in the Humboldt Broncos crash. Xavier LaBelle's parents thought he perished too, but they were wrong. In court, they recounted the horror of reaching the crash scene with their nine-year-old daughter, being told Xavier died, and then two days later, learning he was alive. Questions remain about the punishment Jaskarit Singh Sidhu will receive. The maximum penalty for a single count of dangerous driving causing death is 14 years in prison. Some victims want a precedent set. Others don't want to see another life wasted. He has to be held to account, but at the same time, he's a human being who, he's not a, he's not a serial killer. He, he didn't go out to kill anybody that day. In the final victim impact statement, former Broncos assistant coach Chris Beaudry told Sadu he forgives him, saying, do as much good as you possibly can going forward. Be compassionate, love, and most importantly, forgive as others have forgiven you. During the sentencing hearing, some families have directed blame at the trucking industry and criticized government policy. This is something that should have been changed 20 years ago. Some of the laws around the trucking industry I applaud all the truckers who are out there doing what they're doing well. With victim impact statements complete, the next step is for lawyers to give sentencing arguments. At this point, we don't know when the judge will give her decision. Ryan Kessler, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, a new poll finds more than a quarter of retired Canadians regret leaving their jobs. The CIBC survey reveals 27% of retirees are sorry they left the workforce. 
while 23 percent have tried re-entering the labor market. Nearly 60 percent of those who chose to return to work did it for the intellectual stimulation. 50 percent say financial hardship forced them to job search. The poll also found half of all Canadians would prefer to keep working past the age of 65 rather than retire to a lower standard of living. A hole in the road in Florida sparks an FBI investigation. What they discovered down there right after the forecast. Before we get to that, though, let's be reminded about why we made the life choice <laughs> to live here on the Lower Mainland. Temperatures across our country are plummeting from this polar vortex. It's all about making good life choices, right? isn't it? Right, it is. Key Lake in Saskatchewan, the coldest place in Canada today at minus 48 Celsius. In that chill, frostbite can hit in just minutes. Extreme cold warnings are in place in northern Saskatchewan, Manitoba, most of Ontario and central Quebec. Temperatures dipping anywhere from minus 30 down to minus 50 with wind chill as the frigid air mass sweeps across those provinces. And the frigid weather also hitting most of the U.S. In Chicago, they've had to resort to deliberately set fires to thaw the train tracks and keep the trains moving. Temperatures there have hit minus 30 and could go even lower. Wow. Looks crazy, doesn't it? Yeah, it is crazy. Fighting ice with fire. And yet another beautiful sunset out there tonight. Here's Christy. One after another. Yes, the sunset looks like it's on fire, really. And we've had a number of people sending me emails about that. Great. Thanks to uh, that Tracy Lynn in North Vancouver. Now, uh, today wasn't as sunny as what we saw yesterday. But I wanted to just give you a glimpse. Despite the fact we're going to see a change in the next couple of days. This is a very complicated map. I tweeted it out if you want to have a closer look. The key here that I wanted to show you, though, is we are gaining close to three minutes of sunlight or daylight I should say every day and by a month we will have another hour and 40 minutes. So we're getting there, everyone. The days are getting longer. We did see a fair amount of haze today, and that's because of the stagnant pattern that we've had across the region for eight days now. It's been mainly dry, but we're going to see the change tomorrow. Dry in the morning, it's later tomorrow, probably between 4 and 7 p.m. You can expect the rain to develop here across the lower mainland. Meanwhile, northern B.C., Frigid temperatures, uh, wind chills down to minus 30, and a winter storm warning. We could see up to 50 centimeters of snowfall, as well as windy conditions and a risk of freezing rain. This is a very slow-moving storm, so starting overnight tonight and expecting that snowfall by Saturday morning, so over the next two days. Tomorrow, the main areas that will be affected will be northern B.C., and then it's tomorrow night that it starts to shift into southern B.C. South coast, it will be rainfall. It's really just inland regions that will see snowfall. So here's an idea of how much. We're talking about the highways, so west of Prince George along Highway 16 up to Smithers, as well as down east of Prince George towards Jasper, so areas like um, McBride, for example, and then north of Prince George, Highway 97. We're worried about whiteout conditions on those roads over the next two days. Now, down through the south in the Columbia region, we'll see snowfall as well, Kootenay area, but not until tomorrow night. So tomorrow, mostly dry 
dry during your day. So the snowfall pushing into northern sections by early tomorrow morning, southern regions tomorrow night, uh, mainly dry through the day tomorrow, whereas our region will see the rainfall develop through the afternoon hours, and it will be on and off Thursday night through Friday. Saturday and Sunday, not too bad, but Sunday night, that's when our temperatures plummet and we have the potential of snow. So stay tuned for that. We're still days away. And yes, there's that fiery sky. Once again, thanks to Dave for that shot from Langford. That's incredible. Thank you, Christy. Beautiful. What started as a complaint over a pothole is sparking a big mystery in Florida. The FBI was called out to the hole in the middle of the road after crews found it contained a power cord running into nearby woods. That's where they found a tunnel stretching 45 meters underneath the grass to the other side of the road where there's a chase bank. <laughs> Police unearthed a generator, some boots, and a bucket at the underground entrance. Whether or not someone was planning to rob the bank is still unclear, but they are investigating. Seems pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> Why else would the tunnel totally just be going towards the bank? Totally just a coincidence. We should start taking a closer look at the potholes around Metro Vancouver. Right. Have a little investigation. Fine. There are some that big. Exactly. So the Whitecaps have nearly completely overhauled last year's team, and that continued again today with uh, two signings. Uh, Scott Sutter, who played in Orlando, defender, he's here. And they made the signing of South Korean international midfielder Hwang in Byom official. He signed a two-year contract with two option years. He could be here through 2022. <laughs> It's a big move by the White Caps, by the ownership group and everybody to bring um, a player that is still very young. Hanan Byom is just 22 and he's coming from South Korea's second division. So even though this is the biggest off-season signing for the White Caps so far, the team doesn't want anyone to think of him as their main man just yet. We can think that he's, uh, he's like a savior, right? He's going to need some time to adapt to a new culture, a new, a new club. It's his first time outside South Korea. So all that process, we're going to be very supportive uh, of it. And to convince him to come to Vancouver before thinking about Europe, the Whitecaps asked former player, South Korean YP Lee, to talk to Hong Byom about playing in this city. And YP Lee just said that, look, I... I've played here years ago and I still live here. So that's what I think about Vancouver. So yeah, YP Lee was also one of the tools we used to, to talk with the player and to explain uh, what, what we're about here. Should mention there's a report right now that TFC Toronto FC has sold Sebastian Giovanko to a Saudi Arabian team. Not official yet, though. Uh, the men's basketball team at the University of the Fraser Valley is proving that you can indeed go home again, and you can also get the old gang back together. I mean, it's funny, originally I wanted to play soccer, and that was pretty much my passion and everything. But my dad, he wanted me to play basketball because he didn't want to stand outdoors and watch games. He was like, pick an indoor sport. I mean, so I was taller than all the kids. My brother already played, so then I just started playing because of that. So it's pretty funny, my dad kind of forced me into it. And Sukjuk Baines has been in the gym with the basketball in his hands ever since. The former BC Boys Basketball Top Player of the Year is back home after spending his previous four years down south. 
Baines turning his back on the bright lights of the NCAA for the University of the Fraser Valley Cascades, a team that missed the playoffs last year. They did come off a pretty bad season, so in terms of the basketball, it may not look like the right fit. But, you know, just having all my friends and family and you having some of my teammates I and mean, my brother on the team, I think I made the right choice to come here and we're having a really good season so far. The right choice has reunited younger brother with older brother. Navjit Baines is in the final year of his university career. The siblings haven't played together since they were kids. You know, it's not often you have a chance that, you know, two siblings, uh, you know, are talented and good enough to make, it, make you know, university athletics. So that's, that's rare in itself, and the chance to play together, I think, would be pretty, you know, it's pretty cool. I know they're having a good time this year with it. Well, it was really special. I mean, like last year, it was about, supposed to be my final year, but come, getting, that inju getting injured and everything, so I was out. And then having him come back this year, it was, like, really special. But I think the main factor was for him to play with his best friend, Sokman at Farm. And then me being on the team as well was just, like, that little cherry on top, so... I mean, everything just worked out. It's funny how things work in life. It's a family reunion and an on-court high school reunion. The Cascades roster filled by three Tamanawas secondary grads from a Wildcats team that made it all the way to the Final Four five years ago. And just like back then, Sukjit is once again holding court among friends. It's, it's been something we joked about when we were younger, just you know, all going to the same university. So having it happen now is... It's hard to put into words. This will be one I'll for sure remember for like around the hundred years because high school is something we still kind of reminisce on from there. But just as of right now, the kind of special things that we've had happen, I think this is one that'll stay in our memory for as, as long as we live. You know, we, I mean, I always play basketball with these guys like in the summer and not actually be able to play like on a like a legit university team. It's just, just unbelievable. There you go. Cool. Thanks, right. Square. This is your snow report for this Wednesday, January the 30th. A lot of fresh snow is on its way to the ski hills, but for now, not a lot has fallen. Cypress has 253 centimeters of snow on the ground. Bernie has 188. Whitewater has 194. Two centimeters of fresh snow just fell at Silver Star. Sun Peaks has 150 centimeters of snow. Powder King just picked up five centimeters of fresh snow, bringing it up to a snow base of 251 centimeters. All right. Uh, counting votes is going to commence at 8 o'clock in the Nanaimo by-election. Polls open for just over an hour, uh, one more hour now. Now, before we get results, one last check-in with our team on the ground, Richard Zussman, Sarah McDonald, both in Nanaimo. We'll start with you, Richard. You spoke with the Premier today. How is he feeling? Sophie, he's the one that has the most at stake, and I asked him a little bit earlier how he is feeling. Thank you for doing this. Good to be here. So clearly a huge by-election. Uh, how are you feeling as uh, the uh, polls are almost closed? Oh, I'm feeling very positive. We've had a, just an absolutely outstanding campaign here in Nanaimo. It's an area that New Democrats are quite comfortable in. Uh, Sheila Malcolmson's been an outstanding candidate. And we've been able to tell a story about the largest tax cuts, uh, middle-class tax cut in a long, long time by doing away with medical services premiums, being able to talk about childcare finally being delivered, talk about building schools in a community that desperately needs them. We addressed housing issues right off the bat with more to do. So we had a story to tell. And the other, the other parties had to talk about a record of neglect, and quite frankly, in, in Nanaimo and in BC. So our story story is a more compelling story because it's about the things that people want to see from their government. A lot's being made of this by-election being called the most important by-election in this province's history. How could you possibly continue to govern if you end up uh, losing to the Liberals tonight? 
Well, we have uh, a stable government. We have for the past 18 months delivering on the things I've talked to you about uh, on your program uh, over and over again. Those are the things that people want to see from their government. I don't get a sense that there's a desire for an election, quite the contrary. I get a sense that people want more on the issues that matter to them, health care, uh, education, child care. But you're not concerned about a, a possible tie in the well, legislature? If, the, if there is a tie, uh, press, or tradition for the speaker is to continue debates. So the speaker traditionally supports the government. So it would be 43-43 with a tiebreaker to the speaker. This is not unconstitutional, quite the contrary. It's precedent. So I believe we could play through that for the next number of months. We've got a budget we're tabling uh, in three weeks' time. We're very excited about that. It's going to be a budget that will meet the needs of British Columbians and we're going to continue to govern until such time as uh, we're not able to do that, and then we'll talk about an election at that time. A lot's been made of the fact we may be here because Leonard Krogh wasn't put into cabinet. Will you make that same mistake again and not put Sheila Malcolmson in cabinet? Well, I don't think it was a mistake at all. Leonard was the caucus chair at the time. His experience was vast, and he was able to bring the many new members that we brought into our caucus, get them to learn the ropes. Leonard came back home because the people of the Nanaimo needed a solid, stable mayor. They'd had a very difficult four years with the previous council and people right across the political spectrum urged Leonard to come back and he did and he did so with my blessing because I know how important this city is to him and what's really important is to have Sheila Malcolmson as the MLA, Leonard as the mayor and me as the premier so that we can continue to do good things not just here in Nanaimo and on the island but right across BC. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. And I'm being told we may not actually know the results of the by-election tonight. There could be as many as a thousand absentee votes that would be counted next week. That would mean a very close election tonight. But Chris Sophie, it is a possibility we could see what we saw May 2017 when we saw that razor-type provincial election. No doubt. Keeping you up all night. All right, thanks, Richard. Well, Sarah McDonald, as you saw, is also in Nanaimo, where the Liberals are hoping to steal a riding that's been solidly NDP for years. Sarah, how optimistic is leader Andrew Wilkinson that his candidate's going to take Nanaimo? Well, Chris, we caught up with him a little while ago. Depending on the outcome of that vote tonight, he says we will either see jubilation or dejection here within just a matter of hours. Take a listen to what he had to say. How badly do the Liberals need this win in this by-election? Well, Tony's put heart and soul into this campaign. The family's been here since 1876. He knows this town backwards and is really well-liked in this town, which makes it very easy for us to go and meet people and knock on their doors. And they say, Tony Harris, sure, he's a good guy. I'll vote for him. Now, this by-election uh, on, a, on a macro level could be a game-changer, but victory obviously won't come easy on a micro level here in Nanaimo. This is typically NDB territory. We're actually seeing a lot of John Horgan signs here. Now, why should Nanaimoites um, swing liberal tonight? Well, we've seen a very toxic, nasty campaign from the NDP, and Tony's talked about things that matter to people here. Passenger ferry terminal, improved hospital services, better homelessness uh, uh, services, and so that's the kind of thing that people are actually concerned about. When you talk to them on the doorstep, they want to hear what you really got in mind, not some nastiness about the other side. Now, if Harris and the Libs are to win tonight, that could obviously pave the way uh, for an early election run for you, I mean, for Premier. Now, would you be ready to hit the campaign trail earlier than expected? BC Liberals are always ready. And, you know, you can hear what's going on in there. There's a huge amount of enthusiasm in our world to get on with the world of politics. 
our job is to hold their feet to the fire, and we'll do that. And with Tony on board, we'll do it very effectively. Now, optics-wise, timing-wise, the timing of um, the report released by Speaker Daryl Plekis likely couldn't have come at a worse time for you guys. You were very outspoken and critical of Plekis um, before the report was released. You seem to have changed your tune uh, somewhat since. Is what is in that report, is that indicative of what critics say, uh, or critics, I should say, call at least, um, you know, 16 years of, of entitlement uh, by members of your party and, and does there need to be a change? Well, let's get it straight. The people who are doing the exotic travel were apparently the clerk and the sergeant at arms have nothing to do with the Liberal Party. And Speaker Plekis was on for a good number of those exotic trips too. So we're going to be rolling out a whole ethics package in the near future, talking about capping salaries, controlling travel, getting this all back in mind. Because British Columbians want us to talk about how to fix things, not to throw blame around. So Wilkinson largely sticking to the party line there, but Liberal Party insiders tell me they are cautiously optimistic, but by no means overly confident they will clinch that crucial victory tonight. Chris Sophie, we will find out after the polls close at 8 o'clock. We sure will. Okay, thanks, Sarah. Look forward to your coverage tonight. Now, a reminder, we will have extensive live coverage of the by-election results on BC1 tonight, beginning when the polls close at 8 o'clock precisely and running until at least 10.30. We'll also have a full rundown of the results and analysis on News at 11. Richard Zussman, Sarah McDonald, host of Focus BC, Sonia Diol, Keith Baldry will all be involved. So we hope you'll watch BC1 for that. Thanks for watching us this evening. Have a great night. Good night, all.